When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king uh, to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and said, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come, have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for thirty days, night or day. I and my young women will go also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it might, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. The word of the Lord. We continue in our series on the book of Esther. As you may recall, last week in the last chapter, we saw the villain revealed. Haman is the villain of the story. He uh, really didn't like that Mordecai was not bowing to him, and to respond to that, decided to annihilate all the Jews, all of Mordecai's ethnic group. Of course, there's a historic struggle that's behind it, and um, I think Haman was just looking for an opportunity to do this. So right now, we're at the part of the story where the Jews heard the edict. They saw it. It was sent all over the empire, Persian empire. So everybody now should be pretty aware that, that the power of the empire is set against the Jews. So they are as good as dead. There's nothing to be done. And so we find Mordecai just weeping on the streets, just weeping for the fate of his people. And this is where the queen makes her move. Queen Esther is finally engaged in the story on her own terms. 
in this passage, I, I find this very inspiring and encouraging. I don't know about you. This is the part of the story that most people know. This is when Esther finally undergoes this dramatic change, and I think it is dramatic. She goes from a popular, pretty little pagan princess. How many P's can I fit in the one phrase? Who got to her position of, of, of privilege and power through essentially through compromise. She, she transitions from that change, change to a woman of courage and character and conviction, and now she's willing to risk everything for the sake of others. This is a dramatic change. This is, I mean, if you look at the arc of Esther, the person through the book, this is a, a crazy transformation that happens here. She goes from concealing her identity. Remember, Mordecai told her, don't tell anybody you're a Jew because you don't want to jeopardize your position in the court. She goes from concealing and hiding her identity to becoming a leader among her people. At the end of the chapter, she is ordering Mordecai around. She's telling him what to do, and she's telling, why don't you gather all the people and let them fast for me? She goes from passively waiting around for another's commands to taking charge and commanding others, as we see at the end of the chapter. She goes from listlessly assuming her social station to using her position to influence her own culture towards justice. These These are remarkable changes, and it's especially surprising. This change in Esther is especially surprising because she was, as you remember, she was brought in to replace Vashti. This is the kind of stuff Vashti got in trouble for. And so Esther asserts herself as, as an independent woman. And this is, how is it going to go for her? We'll find out at the rest when we read the rest of the story. But I find this very, very inspiring seeing this transformation in a person. So my question is, how can we undergo the same change that we saw happen to Esther? How can we live authentically and courageously as she does? To understand the nature of this change, we need to consider three things, which is our outline. We need to consider the place she's in. What is her place? What is her position? Secondly, we need to consider a principle that she learns in our chapter. And finally, we need to meet a person who embodies this principle. So a place, a principle, and a person. Okay. As you read the chapter, if you're just even just a casual reader of the Bible, you must notice that a lot of detail is given to where everybody is in the story, just the location of different people. You have Esther, who's in the palace. She's inside the palace. You have Mordecai that comes to the gate of the palace but can't go any further. So he stays in the open square in the city. You have uh, the eunuch who kind of goes back and forth. He's accepted in the palace, but he's a servant, so he carries the message of Esther to Mordecai and Mordecai's message to Esther. And so you have people with different levels of access to power, essentially. You see Esther as being inside the palace, uh, she has limited but still access to the king. And so Mordecai, who can't go to the king directly, he goes to Esther, who can. So he goes to Esther and says, you go to the king and beg for his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. He says that because she can do that. She's inside the palace. She's married to the king. So where you are 
matters. What position you have matters. What kind of influence you exert over others matters, because we're different. I have a type of position that you don't have. You have a type of position that I don't have. And you have opportunities that I don't have and vice versa. And so for us, the first thing we need to do to really come to grips with this text is to, to just recognize that God has placed us in a particular position in life that has given us, He's giving us opportunities to be used for Him. So where do you find yourself today? You were hoping I was going to wait for the application until a little bit later in the sermon, but I'm jumping right in. Where are you in life? What unique opportunities has God given you? You know, Mordecai tells Esther that who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And to probably better translate it is who knows whether God has not brought you to this position, to this place for such a time as this. It's really not Esther that made it happen as much as God placed her there. And so Mordecai is saying, look at your options. Look at your opportunities. What can you do in the position that you're in what God would please God and help his people? Now, I am pressing you to consider where you are and to consider your opportunities and, and your position of influence because often we are unaware of where we are and how God can use us. So, for example, even in Esther's case, when she hears about Mordecai crying bitterly and sackcloth and ashes, which is a sign of contrition and humility and repentance, what does she do? She sends him another outfit. That's what she does. She's like, Mordecai is crying. Maybe he's crying because he doesn't have a nice outfit to wear and he's in the sackcloth and ashes get up here. So I'll just send him clothes. She doesn't know what's going on. She actually doesn't know that the edict went out, or it seems like she doesn't. I mean, it's amazing. She's in the palace, and she's utterly unaware of what is happening in the kingdom. So Mordecai actually makes a copy of the edict, sends it through the eunuch so, so Esther can know what's happening to her people. She seems to be unaware. And she is certainly unaware that she has enough influence to potentially reverse this edict, that she has some leadership here that she can exercise on behalf of her people. It, it seems ironic to me that she, having so much power, being so close to the center of power in the empire, is so isolated from the needs of the people outside the palace. Now, that may be your story this morning. You're in whatever group or place of influence or position of influence, and yet you are utterly unaware of how your position of influence can bear on the needs of other people outside of your world. I think this is what's happening with Esther. She's just kind of happy to live her life in luxury. And yet, Mordecai disrupts it. He comes and says, look around. Look around. Has God placed you uniquely in a position of authority that you can effect change outside of the palace. Um, one of the churches that I've been getting to know through their pastor, uh, the church of St. Paul's Church in Creve Core, and the pastor, Mark Frizz, has become a really good friend of mine and my mentor, and, and they just celebrated their 175th anniversary as a church. It's a pretty long time. And, and they uh, did several services where they reflected on their history and shared some stories. And this is one of the stories that was shared by Pastor Mark. Uh, 
Pastor Nolo was one of the founding pastors of St. Paul's. And he, one time, probably in the service or maybe in a congregational meeting, proposed to the people that they found an orphanage. And a church member protested. He said, but pastor, we don't have what we need to start an orphanage. And the pastor said, yes, we do. We have an orphan. And so they started an orphanage. A young boy named Henry was being cared for by the pastor's family in the church parsonage, and he became the first resident of what would become the German Protestant Orphan's Home, just in case you don't confuse it with any other denomination. Uh, it's the German Protestant Orphan's Home, and now it's still in existence. It's become it's a different name now, and it's probably a very different organization from then, but it still exists. And so how do things like that happen? How does a person with influence engage in a need in the community that's outside, really? It's recognizing the need and seeing that need come close to you. In this case, they had an orphan. They're like, well, we should probably start an orphanage. And so the same with Esther. I mean, she lives this life that's so isolated from what's going on inside the palace. And Mordecai comes and says, we have an orphan. We have a problem. Our people are going to get annihilated. You should probably engage with this. And she didn't even seem to know that that was happening in the empire. Another example of that is what we are exploring with the issue of homelessness and transitional living in North County. Again, we were not aware that this is such a big issue. Of course, we know every community has homeless people, sure. But we've sort of lived in our palace without knowing that there's a huge need out there. And, and not until we got involved with the local school, not until we talked to the police department, not until we just observed and our eyes were open, we realized that this is a huge issue. And perhaps God has placed us here for such a time as this. Perhaps we can be engaged in that and help families. And so as we pray, and as we simply just look around and recognize that we are in a specific place, and we have specific opportunities, and we have specific level of power, we need to use it for God's purposes. So I'm going to ask you to really think about your own life and consider where God has placed you. What smaller community are you a part of? What structures of power you have influence in? What kind of opportunities God has given uniquely to you and equipped uniquely, equipped you to address? Because we're all different. And God has given all of us very specific opportunities and specific influence. Now, when we talk about Christian leadership and, and Christian mission and Christian influence, very often we assume that the best way to engage in this and to live like Esther is through full-time Christian ministry. If someone wants to change the world, they should become a missionary. They should become a pastor or an evangelist or start a charity. And all those are, are fine options. And by the way, I am a pastor, and we're having a missions conference, so absolutely in support of that, of course. But that is not to say that for you to live courageously and for you to live authentically and for you to have an influence for Christ over the world is you have to be in full-time ministry. You don't have to be that. In fact, I would encourage you to see where you are as the place where God has put you and the unique opportunities he has given you. 
I listened to a, a panel discussion just recently, uh, and the title was Saints Are Needed in Every Sphere. Saints are needed in every sphere. One of the panelists, David Platt, and you may know him. He's written a couple of books. He now pastors a church, but uh, used to run the International Mission Board for the Southern Baptists. And he, uh, kind of reflecting on his earlier days as a pastor, expressed regret that he unintentionally separated Christians into two tiers. He said, I didn't say that, he said, but I'm sure that's how it came across, that if you were really passionate about Christ, you would go into full-time ministry. For everyone else, there are regular jobs, but if you're really passionate about Christ, if you really want to serve him, you would become a missionary or you would become a pastor. He regrets it now because he sees how unbiblical that idea is. Now, sure, some are called into full-time ministry. Some are called into cross-cultural missions. Those are legitimate calls, and God has done many good things through people who have responded to that call. And maybe he's calling you to do that, and we'll explore that during the missions conference. However, God uses people of all sorts of jobs. In fact, God deliberately puts you in secular professions, and they're not inferior to full-time ministry. Think about the, the story of Israel's return to Jerusalem, which is happening at the same time as Esther is dealing with this issue of how am I living as, how do I live as a believer in the secular world in this pagan empire. There are Jews who are rebuilding Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the temple at this very time. And so how did God do that? How did God return the Jews from exile into, back into the land how did he accomplish his purposes there? Well, he, there were two major leaders. There was Ezra, right? Ezra was a pastor. He was a Bible teacher. He was a scribe. So his job was to teach the Bible. He did that. But the other leader was Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a politician. He was a governor. He was a, a city planner. He had a particular talent for overseeing large construction projects. Who was more important to the Jewish people as they returned to Jerusalem? Oh, both. Both were important. It's a trick question. Both are important because God used different people differently. Yes, they needed the Word of God. Of course they needed the Word of God. They needed to return to the true worship of the Lord. But they also needed an organizational genius. They needed somebody who was going to who was going to come and pluck people's beards because they were, remember that passage, this is a great passage, because they were worshiping idols. You know, that kind of stuff. And so God uses different people for different tasks. And so when we think about our lives, right, please, if you're not in full-time ministry and God isn't calling you into that, please don't be sad about that, but embrace where you are and say, God has placed me here for such a time as this. And look around. What are the needs outside of your world, outside the palace that God has placed you in that you can address precisely because you are inside the palace? That's my challenge to us this morning. As Esther did that, she recognized her place of influence. She recognized the needs that she uniquely could address. And then she had to learn a principle to finally engage with this problem. Listen to what Mordecai tells her. This is verses 13 through 14. This is when she, she refuses. She pushes back. 
She doesn't really want to do what Mordecai is asking her to do, go before the king and plead on the behalf of her people. And so Mordecai tells her very straightforwardly, he tells her, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another palace, another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What Mordecai is basically saying, he's saying, if you play it safe and do not speak up for your people, you will lose your life anyway. If you risk your life, you might be able to save your people and yourself in the process. That sounds a lot like what Jesus taught us. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. This is the principle that comes directly from Jesus, and that's the principle for life. It's not just rhetoric. It's not just inspirational. It's not just put on a, on a card or on your fridge. I mean, this is, this is a principle for life. And as Esther learns this principle, it transforms her life. She starts acting very differently. So this is the principle. Lose your life, risk your life, give your life, and that is how you actually gain your life. That's the principle. That's what Mordecai is talking about. He says, Esther, if, if you're just going to focus on your life right now, if you're going to pull back and say, I'm just going to protect myself, I'm not going to engage in this controversy, in this problem. He's saying, is this the kind of life that's really worth living? I mean, maybe, maybe your life is spared if nobody finds out that you're a Jew. But even if your life is spared, is it really worth living? Now, Esther starts by clearly focusing on her own well-being. When Mordecai tells her to go to the king, she says, in essence, she says, you, you're probably just crazy to even suggest this idea. She says, do, do you not know what happens to people who go to the king unsummoned? When you approach the king and he hasn't called for you, she says, there's just one law. There's actually a law. There's legal action that will be taken, and you'll be put to death unless, unless the king extends the golden scepter and touches you and thus spares you, thus he forgives you for doing that. And she says, you want me to do that? You want me to go to the king unsummoned? And by the way, he hasn't called for me for a month. I'm not even sure where I stand with him. At first, he, he seemed to be quite taken by my beauty, but now I don't know. And he's got his choice of women, so I don't know. There may be another queen that he's grooming right now, and I'm going to go and give him an excuse to put me to death and now get a new queen. Queen. I mean, this, this, it could go all sorts of wrong ways. Esther knows this. This is a real risk. She is likely giving up her life. And Mordecai says, unless you do that, you're not really living. Unless you're risking your life for other people, that's not really a life. But if you turn your life over to God, and if you discover that God has placed you in this position for a purpose, for this time, you will finally be able to live authentically, courageously, and intentionally. But to do that, you have to risk it all. There's no other way to gain real life but to give up your life. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes it. He says, The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. 
Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. That's a great quote. Lewis has this ability to to put things in a very memorable and clear way. He says, whatever you don't give up is not going to be yours. Whatever doesn't die is not going to be resurrected. Whatever you don't give up and sacrifice now will not be yours in the end anyway. So you have two choices. Play it safe, hold on to what you have, and lose it all eventually. Or give it all up, sacrifice it all, give it away, offer it to God, offer it to other people, and then gain the real life. Then you can really live now and in eternity. Queen Esther, confronted with this principle as Mordecai is is forcing her to consider it, she finally gives in and she says, go tell the Jews in Susa to pray and fast. She doesn't say pray, she says fast because I think the book is just avoiding religious language. But the implication is she wants people to pray for her courage. She wants people to pray that she would gain favor with the king. And so for three days, they were going to fast and pray, she and her servants and the people, the Jewish people in Susa. And then she says, and then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's a great verse. And it tells you her state of mind. It tells you where she is. She says, okay, Mordecai, I'm going to believe you that this principle really holds true. And I will risk my life. And as I risk my life, I'm going to trust that whatever happens is going to give me a better life. So if I perish, because this is a really risky thing I'm doing, if I perish, I perish. But somehow, still through that, God will be glorified and I will get a better life out of it. I will risk everything I have worked for, and if I die, I die. This is a remarkable transformation coming from a person, right, that compromised her faith, compromised her morality just to get to this place of influence and privilege. And now the same person says, I'm going to give all of that up so that I can help my people and be faithful to God. She is clearly now, from this point on, she's pursuing a different kind of life. It's a different principle that she is living under. Now remember, we started with our series of sermons on Esther. We started with this idea that there's the world's way and there's the Lord's way, and they're very different. And the world says, use what you have. Impress others with yourself to get what you want. That's what she did. She used her beauty to get to the point of influence, to the point of luxury and privilege and power. She did that. And now that principle, the world's principle, comes in conflict with the gospel principle. And the gospel principle says, give what you have. Sacrifice what you have. Risk what you have so you can become who you really are, so you can live authentically and courageously.
I would say that's her conversion. I don't know for sure, but I think in my mind this is it. That's when she finally gets to know God. This is when she is finally transformed into a real believer, not just a cultural nominal believer who was raised with the faith in the, in the home, but somebody who now really believes and stakes her life on this faith. And if I perish, I perish. That's her mindset. That's her worldview now. She's now pursuing the way of the Lord and no longer the way of the world. So my question to us is, has it happened to you? Has that conversion, has that change happened to you? And I'm not talking about a time when you started going to church, which may have been your conversion, or the time when you got baptized, which may have been your conversion. I'm talking about this internal transformation where you say the sway of the world with me at its center, with me as the greatest beneficiary, is not working for me. And the world was exposed to you. Whatever, maybe through suffering, maybe through someone's words, maybe through someone's actions, maybe through a direct influence of the Holy Spirit on your heart. And you realize that the world is bankrupt, that the way of the world is not your way anymore. And you've embraced the gospel and you said, if I am to live a real life here, if I am really to live authentically, and if I really to discover who I am, the way God is meant to, for me to be, what I have to do is I have to give it all up, which is what we call repentance. We call that conversion. We call it new birth. You come as a new person into a relationship with God. You leave everything behind. And now you live based on a very different principle where your life is marked by sacrifice. Your life is marked by faithfulness. Your life is marked by giving your life for others, living other-centered life. Sure, God-centered, absolutely, but other people-centered too. Just like Esther had to identify with her people, she had to finally say, these are my people. We have to say, this is my church. This is my community. These are the needs that I am uniquely equipped to address. And this is the way of the Lord. And finally, we get to the last point, always the most important point. If you want to live like Esther, if you're inspired like me by her story, if you want to discover your true self, as Lewis tells us, and live the kind of life that is worth living and worth dying for, you too must learn this principle. But we have something even better than that. We know a person who embodies that principle. We don't just go on the principle alone like Esther had to go. We know a person who has embodied this life-transforming principle, and we can trust him to transform us. Now, I heard from Emerson this morning that when they taught Indian and Nepali pastors on their recent trip that sometimes pastors would just cheer at the mention of good news and at the mention of of something particularly encouraging. I would encourage you to do that if you feel inclined to cheer or to say amen or to engage with the truth of the gospel in some way. Because what we see here, friends, I am not just saying, well, just affirm this principle and change your life. I'm talking about a person who came into our world and said, I will show you how this principle works and I will apply this principle to you so you can be transformed. Sure, it's nice to read a story about Esther and be inspired in some way, and it is inspiring. But it is so much better to know that God himself came into our world to give his life for us. 
Now that's a life-transforming idea. It's a life-transforming event. It's a life-transforming relationship. When Jesus, Jesus was in a place of great power and influence. He was inside the ultimate palace. Now think about his life. Jesus comes from the place of full acceptance, from the place of full power. And he leaves that to come into our world for Adam's helpless race. He tells us about his motivation. He gives up the Father's throne. He gives up the position of authority and power because he finds himself uniquely qualified to plead on behalf of his people. Who can address the issue of sin but God himself? And so God says, I will engage. I will step out of my palace so I can address this need of my people. He had to identify with his people just like Esther. Esther simply had to acknowledge that she was connected biologically to this group of oppressed people. Jesus actually became part of this group of people. Jesus became human. I mean, that's a level of identification and association that we've never seen before. Somebody transforming his nature to become close to us, to be on the inside of our need. Do you know this person who gave up his divinity, his privileges of divinity, his glory to help you? Do you know him? And if you know him, does it transform you? Does it change how you live? When Jesus went to the cross, he said, if I perish, I perish. And then he perished. See, Esther didn't die, but Jesus did. Suffering on the cross for the sins of his people, Jesus looked to his Father. But God did not hold out the golden scepter to spare him. Jesus was actually executed under the full weight of the royal law that says sinners don't come to God unannounced. That's what happened with Esther. Esther was spared, but Jesus wasn't. And because he died for the sins of his people, it's as if a sinner was coming into God's presence and taking the full weight of God's punishment on himself. He appeared before God as if he was a sinner, taking on himself all the sins of his people, and he perished. Do you know this person who gave his life so you can keep yours? When Jesus rose from the dead, it was the ultimate validation of the gospel principle. Jesus did not follow the world and leverage what he had, like Esther did earlier in the story, to get what he wanted for his benefit. Instead, he sacrificed what he had, all that he had, in fact, for the benefit of others. And the world must have felt justified at that moment, saying, see, Jesus, your principle doesn't work. You came to love your people, and look what happened to you. Forsaken, abandoned, dying on the cross alone. Where is your God? That's what the world felt. But what happened on the third day? He rose from the dead, and the gospel principle is validated forever because it shows us that by giving your life, you actually gain life. Jesus gave his life to gain life and to give it to others. We come alive by dying. Do you know this person who himself, in his person, is the way, the truth, and the life? Who came and by his nature being life, gave his life, really died so he could save you. 
Do you know him who came to give you life, real life, abundant life? Do you know him? If you embrace Jesus and follow him in the way that he lives himself and that he wants us to live, you will be able to live courageously and authentically. Now, our culture talks a lot about authenticity. This is authenticity. To discover who you are in God, who you really are, and to live consistently with that. And we do that by giving up our lives, not by affirming ourselves. And as we do that, we discover who we really are in Christ. You'll be able to use your position of power to effect real change. You'll be able to risk your life, maybe even lose your life, and yet at the same time live more fully than you have ever dreamed. This is the testimony of the Christian people all through the centuries. We all agree on this, that the way of real life, true life, now and in eternity is a way of sacrifice, the way of giving yourself to God and discovering who you are and what you're made for through him. I'm going to finish with this story, and then we'll come to the table to express this principle in Holy Communion. Tim Keller tells this story about a woman who came to his church one time. She came up to him after a worship service, and she said, not really sure about this whole Christian thing, but I am intrigued by it. There's something that's, that's drawing me here. And Keller asked her how she heard about the church. She told her story. She said, she had made a big mistake at work, and it probably was a high-pressure situation, very competitive environment. Everybody's expected to perform at a high level, and she makes this terrible mistake, the kind of mistake that would, that would make you lose your job, that would, that would demand firing you. She made a big mistake, and yet there were no consequences for that mistake, and she was expected to get fired. That would have been a normal thing to do, And over time, she learned that the reason she didn't get fired is because her boss, the person immediately over her, her supervisor, actually took all the blame for her on himself. Very unusual, and she was very surprised by that. So she went to talk to him, and she said, well, please explain what happened here, because usually when I do well, my supervisors take credit for what I do. They never take the blame. But you did something very unusual. In fact, by you making that choice, you put your position in jeopardy. You could have been fired for that. Why did you do that? And he was kind of hesitant to, to respond, just kind of reluctant to tell her his motivation. But finally, he said, he said, listen, I'm a Christian. I did this because somebody took the blame for me. And that's what I'm supposed to do. And that so impressed her that her next question was, where do you go to church? because I want that. And you have a secular person that's acknowledging the courageous and authentic life playing out before her, benefiting her, and saying, I don't know about this whole religious thing, but I want what he has. I want that kind of life. What if next Sunday, people from your job, people from your neighborhoods, people from your schools come to Chatham and say, we're not really sure about this whole religious thing, but we're intrigued by this gospel. Because my friend, whom I know to be a Christian, who's part of this church, did something so unexpected, so unusual, so surprising, that I want to learn more 
about this Jesus whom they say they serve? What if that's the motivation for somebody to investigate the gospel? Wouldn't that be cool? But that doesn't happen until we engage with the gospel on a deeper level. Until we say, the way to live is to give up your life to really find it. To live as Jesus lived, to live because Jesus lived and died and rose for me. And let that be the motivating power behind my life.